Hello and welcome to a Carrick Institute podcast. Today we've gone into the vault and have a recording of Dr. Carrick speaking on Parkinson's disease and falls. If you would like to make a suggestion for a future podcast topic, please visit the contact us page on carrickinstitute.com. Well, welcome to 2011 and what an exciting year it is for the functional neurologist and a more exciting year for patients and our fellow humans because we're doing some very great advances in our understanding and in our application. Recently, there's been a whole load of information and investigation as well in Parkinson's disease and specifically on the treatment of falls and the prevention of falls in Parkinson's disease. Why? Because in Parkinson's disease, falls are among the most uh, incapacitating uh, consequences of the disease itself. And it's very, very interesting that when we look at prevention of falls, it really comes down to the knowledge and understanding that you people have in a way that is far, far superior to anybody else that could imagine. So when we look at individual fall prevention, you can't look at falls unless you understand the nervous system, specifically the executive function of the frontal lobes. And we find that when there is dysfunction of the executive function of the frontal lobe of the human brain, then we have unsteadiness and we have balance problems and we have falls. We also, when we look at Parkinson's disease specifically, have to understand freezing of gait. And last year, we talked about that in some fairly great detail. It's very, very obvious that we look at diagnoses of instability, when we look at treatment of instability and fall prevention, that you really are looking at a multidisciplinary type of application. Pharmacy doesn't work by itself, and oftentimes functional neurological treatments don't work by themselves. That is to say, you need to have a team effort. And who's going to be in the team? Well, of course, it's the people that understand uh, what the system is actually doing. So we know about falls. They're the greatest cause of death across all age groups, with the exception of that group between 15 and 22 that have a greater probability of accidental death from automobile examinations. But in Parkinson's disease specifically, these are largely an elderly group of people. The falls are very, very common. And of course, they have debilitating types of consequences, terrible uh, consequences. Of course, there can be uh, mortality, but for individuals that don't die with a fall, they really can lose what little autonomy they have left. Their quality of life can be markedly compromised. Uh, they have injuries that can plague them. And of course, our society in regards to their treatment, the loss of productivity, as well as the immobility of the Parkinson's patient, which demands a greater amount of uh, care. There's been some very interesting work specifically by Eckersback and Wenning, uh, published in Movement Disorders, talking about the progression of falls in Parkinson's disorders when there is a consequence of mortality. We know that uh, if you've had a fall and you've had Parkinson's disease or you have Parkinson's disease, the outcome is not very good for you. There's a greater probability that you may um, have another fall 
and injure yourself. The work of Wenning gave us a little bit of a different outcome than previous work that was published in nursing homes that said that if you have a fall in a nursing home, you're probably going to die within the next year. Well, Wenning's group was, was uh, unable to look at a relationship between the risk of death in Parkinson's disease and uh, falls. So they couldn't find that in that individual uh, disorder. However, there is a direct link between injuries and the things that we've talked about, of course. Uh, when we look at our uh, societal blight with falls, the cost of falls and injuries are just out of sight, absolutely out of sight. A really interesting paper uh, coming from uh, Down Under in Sydney by Healy and Adina, and this was published uh, back in 2008 that looked at a multi-center study of uh, Parkinson's uh, disease. And they looked at a 20-year follow-up of 136 patients with Parkinson's disease, and they found that 87% of these people had falls, and 35% of those uh, had fractures that were incapacitating to these individual people. So it's a very, very high percentage. So when we look at the complexity of the human nervous system and the fact that the human nervous system is designed to allow the brain to embrace the responsibility of allowing us to stand upright in the Earth's gravitational field, we'll realize that when we look at disorders of balance and gait and probabilities of fall, that the treatment is very, very complex because the understanding is, of course, complex. And the pathophysiology is often multifactorial. So we need to be able to understand the integrity of the systems that promote us to be able to stand up and the deficits of those systems. And of course, we need to understand the disorders of gait uh, that can lead to falls, especially when we look at this subsection of our society, the Parkinson's patient. So what are the things that we know? I mean, almost what we call the dopey things that all of us have succumbed to, the, the slip on the banana, the uh, loose rugs, poor lighting. Uh, when you're wearing your Crocs outside and it's wet and you go for a header, as I have done. These environmental factors are things that we must address in our patient care. Very, very simply, you know, hey, what about the rugs in your house? Let's put some something underneath them, those little slip guards and, and things like that to make them aware of things and prevent uh, some falls or slips and, and injuries. We know that freezing of grate is a big, big problem. It happens just from time to time, perhaps not all the time, it's episodic, but when it happens, it happens and it usually happens when individuals are uh, coming to a, a conflict in a room, an obstacle, or, or coming into narrow, uh, narrow hallways, uh, these things can promote freezing of gait. And, and when we also find that when a person has a freezing of gait, they can't generate stepping movements appropriately. And freezing of gait, of course, is one of the leading causes of falls because the people are just surprised. Hey, I can't move. And, you know, I'm, I'm going forward. So some very interesting work by Baz Blue and his group in uh, Nijmegen that look at uh, freezing of gait, as well as the reviews by Fung Morris and Latt that looked at uh, physiological assessments for fall detection, and that was published in, in 2009. So all of 
this information that's just coming exploding in has really looked at our group and said, hey, you know, what are you doing? And we have uh, some data and some publications in work where we looked at our large AARP study, and we probably have the largest normative data group available in the world specifically for elderly people and stability. So we're we're still crunching that data. It's just so much. What do you do? You really. Uh, do with that. But one thing that we do know, and especially we've got some very good contributions from Amboni, we also have contributions from Professor Gelati in Israel that look at um, executive functions or these frontal lobe functions. And these things are very, very important. So we know that when people have cognitive impairment, that this is so very, very important in stability. And in fact, cognitive impairment is one of the key factors that contribute to both freezing of gait and, of course, of falls. So when individuals have a history of fall, we want to look very carefully at their executive function. We know as people become progressively demented in different frontal executive uh, types of syndromes that falls are a great issue uh, for them. And this really gives a demand on us as clinicians to really understand that uh, frontal striatal dopaminergic system. We know specifically denervation of the caudate nucleus or more generalized cholinergic dysfunction is associated with, with falls. And this is uh, something that we really have got to, uh, to understand better. There's a paper by uh, Bonin that is published in Behavioral Brain Research in 2010 that talks of the cholinergic system and Parkinson's disease. And when you think of uh, the cholinergic system, you think of the cerebellum. When you think of the uh, dopaminergic system, you think of the basal ganglia, basically. So this, this interaction of different systems is becoming more and more understood. But as we understand more about it, we find that prevention of falls is very, very difficult, but we can do a marvelous job if we identify people. And largely we use posturography, our physical examinations, and our knowledge in, in the things that we might be able to do uh, for people. Now, it's true that most of the knowledge that we have uh, in, in, in our group as well as other groups is in the non-Parkinsonian general public, and that's because there's just, there's just more of them. So, can we take the information that we receive in the non-Parkinson patient and apply it to the, the Parkinson's patient? Well, that's pretty well what we're doing, but we don't, really, we don't really know if that's true. We don't even really know if it's appropriate to say that what happens in one group we can do in another group. It may make sense or it may not make sense, or the reflexes in a pathological group may be different than the reflexes in another group. So a whole load of demand of investigation on the things that we can do is coming up and we are really, really uh, embracing this. We have to realize that a very high percentage of the Parkinson's patient are taking a Parkinsonian type of uh, medication. And these, of course, are for the DOPA uh, sensitive uh, patients. And of course, they're gonna have uh, different types of of uh, pathologies associated just with the drugs themselves. So let's look at patients that have falls. You need to examine them completely from head to toe. They all need posturography. 
Caps is probably the top, the MIDOT at the bottom, uh, the Vertec in, in the middle, but you need to do one of them. So whatever your your bank account can afford, you need to have a, uh, a pressure scale. We're doing our research with the, the Caps, and, and we do it because we get very, very fine data that is uh, replicable. So that's the, the gold standard as it seems to, to be, and you'll be seeing a lot of this this uh, this year. We know that falls are multifactorial, so you need to examine all of the individual organ systems. Now, how can you predict falls in individual people? A paper in Neurology in 2010 by Kerr, uh, Worringham, and Cole talking about the predictors of future falls in Parkinson's disease. And this paper was was pretty darn good because it really allows you to to look at different different measures, they're going to say, hey, uh, does this person have a probability of having a fall? And the best prediction was found by combining disease-specific measures. And disease-specific measures, for instance, the severity of the Parkinson's disease, the severity of the tremor, the severity of the freezing of gait. They combine these types of uh, measurements with balance measurements and the balance measurements are very, very important. Posturography, of course, the gold standard. You're going to have to have those individual devices. That's pretty well law for all people in nursing homes and hospitals, and, and we need to embrace it. But the other things that we need to do is use our tilt tables very, very specifically, and we need to talk about uh, orthostatic hypotension. Very, very important. We need to be able to uh, measure exactly the anterior-posterior sway in in all of our people. If you don't have your caps or so, then of course the Tenetti score you need to do, and that takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of, uh, of staff. But if you do all of this together, you can get a predictability of a fall to come up to around 80%, which means to say that 20% of people are going to fall through the through the individual cracks. So perhaps adding a cognitive type of measurement is going to uh, narrow down that 20% that are really not uh, be, being caught. So we need to really do a whole lot of things on the testing of the freezing of gait. And last year in our podcast near the end of the year, we talked about freezing of gait, we talked gait, and we talked about the measurement scales that you can use. So the, the typical scales just in review that you're going to do is you're going to have your people do rapid 360 degree turns right on a spot and and then we're going to look at the the fact that for frontal executive dysfunction people that are a little bit demented or are starting to lose that executive control have a slowing of these turns in 360 degrees and they may or may not freeze but they definitely will slow. We also realize that individuals that have had a fall are oftentimes afraid of having another fall, so you need to identify whether people have a fear of falling and they're not going to go out. We know, of course, that if someone's afraid of falling that they're not going to be so very active. They're not going to be going out and, and running around and doing things that are really, really uh, super. So here's the deal. When you look at the Parkinson's patient, most of these people are going to, take, uh, going to end up taking dopaminergic medication. That's the, that's the gold standard of people treating. But guess what? It doesn't do anything to defects of balance. In fact, there's a resistancy 
to any balanced def uh, deficit when you when you give someone L-DOPA. It just doesn't work. Now, we know, of course, that dopaminergic medication can help uh, freezers. You can make them walk a little bit a little bit better, but the dosage that you need to be able to uh, break the freezing is very, very, very high uh, when you compare it to the dosage that is needed to decrease a hand tremor, uh, for instance. Now, the other things that are going on right now in the, in the, uh, in the medical world or in pharmacology is looking at cholinesterase inhibitors in the treatment of gait and balance deficits. Again, uh, when you look at this type of research, I think really a good reference paper is the paper Neurology in 2009 by Mueller and Bonin, uh, and they talked about reduced cholinergic types of, types of uh, treatment. And again, we start looking at cerebellum. Well, you know the things that you can do for that that cerebellum very, very specifically with pattern movements, whether passively or actively, complex movements, movements in a single plane. We don't need to go into the mechanisms of that now, but if you have any questions of it, I'll do it again if, if you'd like that. We know, of course, that even in Alzheimer's disease, there's hope using cholinesterase inhibitors, and that is pretty darn expensive, uh, expensive uh, <laughs> literally, because the, the treatment with these anticholinesterases is largely using galantamine, and that improves gait uh, performance in patients with Alzheimer's disease. In the Journal of the American Geriatric Society back in 2008, Assel and Allelie uh, published a really very, very good paper uh, discussing just that individual consequence. And that is very, very rich, but it tells us that if we can look at a, a drug, a global drug that affects gait and performance, and we can use the same parameters and put, and put our things to the test and see if we might have a better outcome. I know that we do uh, from my own clinical experience, but we need to have the control studies that will allow us to be able to help more people. Remember that what we find out in research is going to be allowing us to serve people at a much, much better uh, level. At the other hand of the spectrum, of course, uh, we've got the uh, deep brain stimulation, that stereotactic uh, surgical aspect. And again, uh, it's becoming a little more popular, but uh, who, who gets it really? Um, when it comes to the freezers and people with gait and balance deficits, uh, you know, who, who, who's going to get it? And, and what is the target going to be? The subthalamic nucleus or the globus pallidus internus? We know that when you look at the surgical studies, they're very effective in giving you some short-term relief of motor symptoms. Short-term. But long-term, hey, not so very, very not so very, very good. In fact, when you look at falls after a two-year follow-up of individuals that have had deep brain stimulation, well, uh, the falls are more common after stimulation of the, of the nigra, for instance. Well, what the heck, you know? When we look at this, it gives us a little bit scary because some of the, some of the things that, that are done to people may not be good in the long run. So read the, the paper by Follett and Weaver, and that's published in New England Journal of Medicine, 
and it's a classic paper uh, published in 2010 and they discuss the the difference between uh, palatal and subthalamic deep brain stimulation for individuals with Parkinson's disease and they showed that at the end of the day the short-term benefits were there but the long-term benefits just weren't there as and in fact uh, there uh, is a worsening of gain and balance deficits. Now, when you look at the nigral stimulation, the people have worse balance and gait immediately after the operation, but several years after, they still have a, a terrible, terrible time of, uh, of things. So when we look at the deep brain stimulation uh, mafia, there's a whole load of very interesting, exciting research, but it's all pointing out to the fact that, hey, that probably is not the way to go for this individual disorders. Well, we know that physiotherapy is seems to be the the answer as we, uh, you know, as we talk about it. You know, physiotherapy, and uh, when we look at the studies in physical therapy, there's a very interesting paper by uh, Kuss and Munich, and they look at physical therapy, the future challenges of the evolution, uh, and they published a paper in 2009 in Movement Disorders, and basically. They're, they have guidelines that have been updated. They give a little menu of treatment modalities, and their treatment modalities are reasonable. What do they want to do? Decrease falls and increase mobility. Well, there are different things that have proven to be true. Cueing techniques, of course, exercise, cognitive movement strategies, uh, auditory stimulation, rhythmic mechanical stimulation, visual cues, and all of these things have a very, very impressive uh, consequence of gait improvement and decreasing of, of freezing. There's some very interesting cueing act activities such as walking glasses with uh, different patterns of visual stimulation and auditory stimulation and uh, singing when walking. All of these different things have been shown to give some very, very, very good types of results. Now most of you do use combinations of visual and auditory stimulation. A very good paper by Macaulay and Daly, published in 2009, looked at a, uh, a novel design of visual cue glasses that aid gait in Parkinson's disease. Now, we have been doing these things for years clinically, but we have failed in regards to publishing what we're doing, and we're trying to put a band-aid on that. But you can see that many of the techniques that we do, and we present these things at conferences and then other people can jump on them and, and then publish the papers. So it, it's getting out there. The things that you're doing have got a basis. Years ago, uh, people look at neuromates, you know, flashing lights and hemifields and putting music in their ear and go, what the heck is going on now? Now everybody is doing it. It's just really uh, just a cool sort of a deal. And historically, it really did start with, uh, with us. Now, we, we realized that when we look at the studies that are out there, there's a lot of planned controlled studies that are gonna be looking into efficacy and, and also, of course, of the cost effectiveness. That's very, uh, very, very uh, important. There's an interesting paper by Dibble uh, in the Journal of uh, Neurological Physical Therapy that talked about the effects of exercise on balance uh, with Parkinson's disease, and they looked at you know cost types of effectives. So what else are we looking at? Treadmill training is very, very important because people will realize that 
treadmill training can help to improve gait, uh, akinesia and Parkinson's disease. And there's a Cochrane study that really reviewed that very, very uh, well. And the Cochrane database is something you should be aware of. Uh, the study by Mirholtz and uh, I think it was Frilis, yeah, Frilis. Uh, and that was published like a couple of years ago, 2008 or 2009. But look at and you know, research these Cochrane reviews. They give you a whole really good idea of what's happening in the uh, literature. Yeah, some interesting things with our gyroscope that we have now, whole body stuff. Are we going to be able to do some, some great things? Well, maybe. So what do we need to do? We've got to realize that we've got to look at all of our patients and we've got to understand falls and balance and gait. And we need to understand the basal ganglia, the dopaminergic system, the cholinergic system, what happens in the cerebellum, and the things that everybody is doing that we are doing, and the things that we are doing that everyone else is doing it, and learn to do things better and increase our armamentarium. But we need to evaluate all people and have a statement uh, specific about uh, falls and the impact that these falls might have on their individual uh, functioning. We need to be able to know what we're doing so that we can embrace a multidisciplinary team approach. Nobody is going to want to work with a doctor who doesn't know as much as that person knows. You need to basically establish yourself as an expert and not be a, a cocky expert, but a sharing expert, someone who is just a wonderful part of this uh, multidisciplinary team that uh, is, is really dedicated to helping people and to doing the best things uh, for them that you can that you can imagine. And that we can do very well with our education and, and training. When we look at the management of uh, individuals that are at risk of falling, especially the Parkinson type of patient, we need to really identify all these search factors. You may want to uh, tour the home or get people to describe their home so you can decrease, you know, the slips and falls and and you know furniture or things that are in the way. Uh, we then need to be able to look at their environment and, and just say, hey, you know, let's make you a risk-free environment. Well, it's very, very difficult, as you know, to take people and give them the, the best uh, dosages of their medication, whether you're using uh, dopamine or whether you're using an anticholinergic drug. Uh, people now are playing with uh, cholinergic therapies. I say plain because people, we don't really know what is going to happen. So you may have a shift from the, you know, L-DOPA to an anticholinergic. And this whole consequence of, of embracing the cerebellum for me is very, very exciting. We'll talk about it greatly throughout this year. But we need to talk about other things in our jobs. We need to be able to address that fear of falling. And of course, if you can show people pre and post your treatment that they've improved 30, 40, 50, 60 percent on the CAPS test, that fear of falling just goes goes away. I mean, it's just a very, very exciting uh, type of deal. So we need an integrated response. We need to understand the system. And I think that this podcast that really just identifies the fact that Parkinson people, almost 90 percent of them are going to fall, uh, it's just disastrous for them. The freezing the representation of the earlier detection of Alzheimer's, frontal temporal dementia, Lewy body diseases, really puts us in a very fantastic spot to contribute not only to the literature,
but to the realistic expectations of our patients so that we might help them become a little more uh, stable. So um, get yourself a force platform, even if you get yourself you know, the MyDot ones, which are pretty, pretty expensive. Or I think you can rent the CAPS units now, so you don't even have to have a great outcome. I believe they're renting them, and it's rather inexpensive. The, the value that your patients get and the referrals that you get as a consequence of offering that type of treatment really uh, make, the, uh, make the investment very, very worthwhile. Okay, well, thanks for listening to this. And we had so many uh, letters and emails uh, throughout 2010 asking us to talk more about falls and Parkinson's disease as we started getting through things and it's certainly just a great pleasure so thanks if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics please visit the contact us page on careinstitute.com